This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with brand strategist Austin McGee about what a brand strategy actually is and why brand positioning is paramount. You position something effectively in a fresh, compelling way over time, and at some point you will find that you have built a brand. If the product or the service is great, it's going to be relatively easy to build yourself a brand. Here's Debbie Millman. Austin McGee is a colleague of mine. He works in the San Francisco office of our company, Sterling Brands. But that's not why I've invited him on Design Matters. He's here because of his new book, Brand is a Four-Letter Word. You would think that there's a great deal of cognitive dissonance between the name of our company, Sterling Brands, and the title of Austin's book. I mean, is he with the program or not? I should say that Austin isn't against brands per se. In fact, over the past 30 years, he's worked with some very recognizable brands, including Disney, Nike, Google, and Anheuser-Busch. Austin, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Deb. Well, before we get started talking about positioning, I want to talk about something that you did last year. Uh oh. <laughs> you took a 39 day cross country journey on your bicycle. Thank God that's what you're going to ask me about. <laughs> what on earth provoked you to do that? 39 days on a bike across country from one end to the other? That's a really good question. In fact, when we started the ride on the first day, one of the riders had a camera on their helmet and, um, pulled up to everybody and interviewed them kind of on the bike and asked a simple question. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? And I think I was the only one that didn't have an answer. It's like, because I kind of needed a goal. Anyway, I'd never seen America. I'd flown into lots of cities. I didn't grow up here. And I'd never seen all the stuff in between. So it was a way to see all the stuff in between and um, ride 100 miles a day, which is sadistic at the end of the day. But it was fun. So you rode 3,270 miles. You had 200 hours of cycling, which you calculated to 1 million pedal strokes. That's an awfully lofty goal. <laughs> the Internet is a marvelous thing. I can't believe you actually found that. Um, oh, well, yeah, I, I, had a, I, I had a very sore ass by the end of that I trip, actually and I won't bore that, you with the details. Well, your shorts did seem to have a lot of padding in them. The back. shorts had better have a lot of padding. <laughs> now, for those of my listeners that are interested in your journey, uh, you <laughs> did create a blog for the journey, and it was called Austin's Long Ride. Oh, God. Um, an intermittent history of one man's journey across the U.S. on a bicycle seat created to spare his friends and family from multiple emails telling them how awesome today That's was. That's true. Great title. So was it, was it awesome? What did you learn about yourself throughout this journey? Absolutely nothing. You know, I'm just not one of those reflective people, so I didn't finish the day's ride, go into my room, turn the lights down, and... Blog? Think greater thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, by the end, actually, the blogging was interesting because it was really interesting, I thought, for the first 10, 20 days, and then it got very redundant. Like, this was beautiful. This was awesome. I'm really tired. My legs are sore. Or some sort of formulation of those those four things. 
It was great. I, I, had, a, I had a gas. Now, never, I also, ag- never again, though. Never again. Well, I also know firsthand that you also worked throughout the I trip. Did. I did. So how did you manage to do that? Well, they it was an organized trip. So they take your bags to the, you know, 100 miles down the road to the next hotel. And you finish your ride around. I was finishing around 1 or so in the afternoon. And so I just put my feet up pull out my laptop and bug people. It was great. <laughs> and the business actually went through the roof while I was gone. So it was a great piece of learning, unfortunately, for everybody that they essentially didn't need me to, to move things ahead. But uh, I had a great time. Either that or you were in such a calm and clear state of mind that you were able to get to the answers a lot quickly, Why a lot more quickly. didn't I think of that? <laughs> well, Austin, you said that you didn't grow up in the United States. You actually were born in Scotland. You've lived in Chicago. You've lived in Australia. You've lived in Seattle. And you now live in San Francisco. Don't forget Canada. Oh, yes, because you went to school in Canada. And your first job was in Canada. That's Nabisco. right. How long did you live in Scotland? Till I was 14. And then you moved to Canada. To Canada, and then Australia, and then the U.S. How come you don't have any accent? Because if I speak with my Scottish accent, you can't understand a word I say. So I, I moved away from it. So let me hear you say, hi, my name is Austin McGee, and I'm the president of the strategy division at Sterling Brands. And I, kind of, I kind of follow that, but I talk like this, you know. And that's just the way they talk over there. <laughs> it's a bad, it's really bad now. <laughs> and you met your wife in Australia, so do you I have did. any kind She's of Australian American, accent? No, or? Australian accent has got to be the hardest accent in the world to do. It's like, get on, mate. How you going? Which, again, is really bad, so apologies. But um, it's really hard to do. I think I perfected my sort of American-sounding accent while I was in Australia, though. I want to talk a little bit about your book. Actually, I want to talk quite a lot about your book. So let's get all the career stuff out of the way so we can well, talk not about even your do book. The career well, stuff. I just think it's it's nice for people to understand <clears throat> your journey as a professional strategist because I think it'll also add some credence to your very provocative and and sometimes challenging points of view. So you you went to Queen's College in Canada, Queen's University. Queen's University, though. Queen's University, upset. yes, in Canada. Um, and then you went directly to Nabisco. So you have an MBA from Queen's University. You worked at Nabisco Brands in Toronto. You were a brand manager? I was a lowly assistant brand manager. Did I become a I don't even remember. I think I was an, just an assistant brand an manager. An ABM, as they call it in the biz. An ABM. And then went to Kellogg's as a brand manager. And that was in Canada and Australia. Right. And then they, they that took me to uh, ultimately to Australia. And what brands did you work on when you were at Kellogg's? For a little while, I was running the um, frozen food business, and in Australia, it was really just the cereal, and we were marketing them all through Asia, based in Sydney, so it was like the world's most perfect job. I got to live in Sydney, hang out on the beaches, and then travel all over Asia to try to convince people to buy cereal. And then from there, you abandoned the client side and have worked agency side ever since. So you had a stint at Ogilvy in Chicago. You were president of the San Francisco office of Young and Rubicam. You were working as the president at Colin Weber in Seattle before finally coming to Sterling. What made you decide to go from client side to advertising agency side? I always thought those people were having more fun than I was. So and did it turn out to be and true? And it really irritates me when people are having more fun than than, than I am. Um, <laughs> 
It turned out to be true. I have to say, Kellogg's was fantastic. I loved my years at Kellogg's. They were really, really good to me. But I, lo- I really enjoyed the advertising business. And, and it turned out, you know, in hindsight, that the one part of all of those jobs I liked the most was the strategy part. And now I just get to do the fun part. So somehow Simon Williams, the CEO and founder of Sterling Brands, persuaded you to come to Sterling about 10 years ago now. He told me he loved me. (laughs) Was that all it took? You know Simon. (laughs) It's funny he didn't say that to me when when he persuaded me to come. But in any case, not that I'm competitive. Um, (laughs) So you started um, Sterling's San Francisco office 10 years ago. Um, you started the office as a strategy office. So let's talk a little bit about what you mean by strategy, and then let's segue that into brand as a four-letter word. Well, it's a really good question because actually I wrote the book, and then a client asked me in a meeting. We're, of course, we're a brand strategy group. So he said, by the way, Austin, what the hell is strategy? Yes, what the hell is strategy? And I sort of thought, you know, shit, I should have a good answer to this question, and I don't. So I, I, here's my version of the good answer. So I think strategy is the creation of forced choice. And by that, I mean a good strategist sees a world of information, a world of data, a world of stuff. And if you're good at strategy, you're good at kind of seeing the patterns in the data, right? And you use those patterns to create choices. So um, you look at all that data and you say, all that data means I should either do this, this, or this. And then you make one of those choices, and you stick with it. And that's why strategy is really hard. It's really hard to find people that are good at it, and it's really hard to practice it well, because you actually have to figure out what those choices are. You need to make them discrete and different from each other. You need to pick the right one, and then you need to stick with it. And there's no middle... A lot of people want to do the middle ground. If I could just have a little bit of that and a little bit of this, strategy, like a lot of things, doesn't work well that way. And that's why everybody uses people like Steve Jobs as sort of a poster child for strategy because he was, I don't know how he would have put it, but he was like a strategic zealot. He essentially used all the information he had to create two worlds, the good world and the bad world. And in the good world, you bought really cool, beautiful, intuitive, elegant stuff. And in the bad world, people glued stuff together. And he essentially got us to see the world that way. Now, it almost drove him out of business, but still, at the end of the day, here we are. And here is Apple. All because he managed to convince us through his own personality and certainly through their products that there were really just two choices. And he was one of those two choices. So when you talk about forced choices, you're basically creating an understanding for your clients of their possible options. And then you have to really stay very steadfastly focused on what that specific choice is. That's what you mean by forced choice. That's right. And, 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 you know, there's several steps to that process, and they're all really, really hard. I mean, sifting through mountains of data, because most of our clients have mountains of data. Most marketers do. Why is that? It's an advantage to be better informed. It's an advantage to have better information than, than, than your competitor. But at the end of the day, the information can kill you if you can't sort through it and see the patterns. And I think you could argue that strategy is kind of pattern recognition. It's, it's seeing the pattern in the data. How do you do that? How do you see a pattern? That's a good question. If, if I knew the answer to that, we'd be much better at screening would-be strategists. It's 
really hard to do. And some people, I, I think we can make people better at it. But I think at the end of the day, it's like IQ. You know, IQ is the ability to see relationships and data. Strategy in a different way, in a more intuitive way, is the ability to see relationships in information you're getting. But then also just seeing it is just the beginning of the game. You've got to actually then create these choices out of it. And then you've got to have the guts to make bold choices. And all the poster children we have in the in the world of brand strategy are all generally all people who started their own company. And while most of those fail and only a few succeed and they become our poster children, that's in many ways a lot easier than actually taking an existing company and getting them to embark upon a bold, new, clear strategy. Now, these poster children, of course, we talk about Apple. Yeah. And in thinking about the mountains of data that a good strategist needs to be able to go through and see and recognize those patterns and then be able to create a trajectory for that right. strategy, what about somebody like Steve Jobs who didn't use mountains of data, who didn't famously didn't want to ask people what they wanted or what they thought they needed next? Well, and I think to some degree there's a bit of a myth about Apple in that they don't use research. They do but they don't use it to tell them what to do. I would say the same thing about strategy. Good strategists figure out what will best work for them. You know, in the book, I talk about differentiated advantage. What makes you different in a way that makes you better? How are you going to win? There might be one way to do that. There might be a few choices of ways to do that. Then go and talk to people. Do your research to find out what they will sign up for how you should do it, how to refine your thinking. But do not, do not, do not, and a lot of people do this, go to consumers or customers and say, what do you think I should do? So Apple knows what they want to do. They know how they'll win the game. But they do lots of research to sort of fine-tune and refine and, and, and better sort of understand how to present the way they are to people. They just never, they would never dream of going to those people and saying, what do you think I should do? Do you know what type of research they have been using? Is it qualitative? Is it quantitative? Ethnographic? Online? I don't know. I I, I do know they do quite a bit of qualitative. I would assume they do a lot of quantitative, just tracking. And, you know, they're running a big business. So they, they, they have to track that business. They have to have that information. It's just they're not... Uh, and I think this is true of, say, Google, too. They're not driven by the information. They're driven by what they want to do. They use the information to figure out how well they're they're doing it. And there's a big difference. Now, one of your big clients is Google. And I know that mm. you're not allowed to talk about a lot of the work because of all the confidentiality and so forth. But if Google is coming to a firm and asking that firm to help them with their strategy... What would be the kind of work that you would do to help them figure that out? Well, you know, Google obviously knows what it's doing in this core of their business, and it's been incredibly successful. And they know what they're doing with Android these days, and and that's been incredibly successful. And I think where they might look outside for some help, inspiration, sort of third-party thinking is outside of those places. I think Google, in many ways, has an embarrassment of riches in terms of opportunities. There are probably, if you place yourself in their position for a second, a hundred things they could do next week 
most of our clients don't have 100 things they could do next week. All of them could succeed. All of them would be potentially true to who they are. Some would be more true than others, and some would be more successful than others. The task they've got is to sort of it, – it's more sort of rank ordering of the opportunities and making sure that they pursue each and every one of those opportunities with enough critical mass that it might succeed. I always use the analogy of, of you're facing a whole bunch of vending machines and, and you put 50 cents in each one of them. So you can end up spending a fortune and putting 50 cents in a ton of machines, but then you find out that it costs a dollar to get a, a drink. So you actually didn't get anything. And I think a lot of our clients have this issue of, you know, let's do one thing, let's do it really, really well, and then let's move on to the second thing and the third thing and the fourth thing. But let's work our way carefully down our, our list of priorities. And again, sorting through the information to figure out what those priorities should be, that strategy. So you start off your book, Brand is a Four-Letter Word, by stating that the word brand is the most misused and least understood word in the business of, as you put it, well, branding. <laughs> Why is that? Why is it the most misused and least understood word in the business? So I just want to say for the audience that Debbie knows the answer to this question because she's my partner and we talk about this all the time. So there's a couple of things. So I say, as I say in the book, it's not a verb, people. Please stop using it as a verb. You can't brand something. We're not in the magic business. You can't do branding, but it is a noun. And as a noun, it's kind of the prize. And call it brand, call it whatever you want. At a certain point in time, what you're doing, the product or service you've created and you're working on starts to have meaning to people. And it starts to have meaning over and above what it does for those people. And at a certain point, you've crossed a line. And you didn't know it was there. And you might have taken a pretty convoluted path to get there. But at a certain point, you've actually built a brand. But the work is not branding. The work is, as, as the book says, it's positioning. And, and to me, you know, positioning is marketing. It just sits at the heart of marketing. You position something effectively in a fresh, compelling way over time, and at some point you will find that you have built a brand. And the other thing I would say is doing that is a strategy. It's not an objective. And one of my other sort of pain points, if you will, in this business we work in is that people treat it like a god. The god of marketing is brand. And of course, we all want to build a brand. Well, no. It's a strategy. It's not an objective. We all want to make more money. We all want to build our businesses. And sometimes, a lot of the time, building a strong brand is the best possible way to do that or part of the best possible way to do that. But it's a strategy. It's not an objective. And I think that we use the B word as if everybody has the same understanding of it. They don't. No, you, you state in the book that you can't even get your own colleagues uh, exactly. to agree on a single it, it, definition it, it, of the word. It, that's ex exactly right. And, and, and we just seem to sort of talk about it in worshipful tones rather than as a business asset. And, and again, I think we want as marketers, we want the business partners we have, whether they be other marketers or technologists or salespeople or whatever, we want them to work with us. And we just got to take all this mystique out of what we do. What we do has real value, but it's not mysterious. It's not about some idol called a brand. It's about 
positioning something so that people understand what it represents and understand how it's different in a way that makes it better. And if we can get everyone to understand that, we'll be in really good shape. And if that, if you want to call that building a brand, great. So it seems like you have issues with the word branding and not so much no brand. So so the the idea of a brand isn't something that you feel is provocative. No, no. I just think, you know, two things. I would say let's – please, let's stop using it as a verb. And then secondly, when we use it as a noun, let's – sort of take the mystery out of it. Let's take the idol worship out of it. Let's get... How do you do that? How do you take the idol you worship just, out of something that is... You know, bring some is... common sense to, to... I mean, what we do is just common sense. I mean, we learned to position stuff when we were kids. How? Mom, I didn't, I didn't drop that. The cat pushed it, you know. That's that, not positioning. That, that sure it is. How is that positioning? An event occurred. It can be positioned in <laughs> any w- in number of ways, so and it's we learn quickly to position it in a way that deflects blame. And we get better and better and better at that. And good marketers are good at positioning things. Other people have said, you know, it's about how you frame things. And you know, we're we're working with a client right now, and the way we've sort of expressed it is there is a conversation in the marketplace about you that frames or positions you in the following way. As long as that's the conversation, you can't win. You just can't win. In that conversation, you are always the loser. We need to reframe it or we need to reposition you such that the conversation shifts to this conversation where in that conversation you actually have a shot at winning. So, you know, marketing essentially is about how you position who you are the things that you do. So I think it works broadly at a strategic and a brand level, but it also works tactically. Salespeople are the world's best positioners. In what way? They check out the person they're selling to. They know within seconds how to position their argument, their product, their service, such that they maximize their chances of selling that thing to this person. The problem with that is five minutes later, they'll completely position it in a different way to sell it to somebody else because they're all about the sale. Brand builders have to find the place where you can consistently position something over time, which is tougher. And, and again, what is it? the only problem with consistency is you got to stick with it. You know, so positioning's harder in the sense that it needs to be an idea everyone can grasp and stick with over time. But salespeople are positioning stuff right, left, and center. They're very, very good at it. It's just they're not consistent about it. So one could conceivably argue that a Facebook profile or yeah. a profile on Match.com is positioning oneself. Yeah, absolutely it is. We're doing it every time we meet somebody. We are positioning ourselves. So we're all sort of somewhat good at this. We've all learned how to do it. That's what marketing is. It's just essentially the art of positioning the thing, the argument, the product, the service, the idea. And we talk, obviously, in, in, in our business, we talk a lot about how you get to one idea that, again, shows the world how you're different, because that's how brands are built, through difference, how you are different. But any idiot can be different. So it's not just about difference. It's about being different in a way that makes you better to the, the audience you serve. Alluring. Alluring is even better. Um, but, but, you know, how am I different in a way that makes me better? 
how simple can I make that idea? And then how can I present that idea in ways that get people to understand it and buy into it? You have a wonderful definition or articulation of what a great position is in brand as a four-letter word, and I want to read that to you and then talk a little bit about that. You say that a great position is a simple yet compelling idea that represents an area of differentiated advantage. It establishes what it is that makes you different from your competitors and does it in a way that creates a competitive advantage in the eyes of the customers or consumers you serve. Think of your position as the front door to your house. Inside that house is everything you do and you're justifiably proud of it. I think that's a wonderful way to be able to understand what a position is. But let's go into that house for a moment. How do you decorate the house? How do you decide what furniture to have? I'm glad you you actually reminded me of that because that that part of of that statement has been built over time almost kind of through self-defense because a lot of the time when we're working with clients, not surprisingly – they will say, but I've built this beautiful – and they're not using these words, of course, but I've built this beautiful house. We do all these things so well, and we've got to take somebody who feels that way justifiably about the product or service they've developed, and we have to focus them on one idea, and that's the front door analogy. Positioning is like the wedge that opens the door. It, it, you've got to get somebody to your front door, and you've got to get them to open the front door. Once they walk into the house, you get to show them all that other stuff. You get a longer discussion. They get to discover your product, your service, all the great things about it. But you've got to select the one idea that will stand out there in the world of front doors because, of course, your competitors all have front doors too, and pull people to your house and pull them in the door. Then you get the longer discussion. But positioning is about getting someone to your front door. Now, you, you've stated that positions polarize. Bill Cosby's quote that you include in the book is, I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. Right. And so what does that have to do with positioning? Great positions and great brands in many ways are like great people. People who stand out, love them, hate them, whatever you may do, you're not indifferent about them. They stand out because they polarize. Easy thing to do if you're building a business from scratch tough thing for a CEO to do if he's running a business. So there's there's little old me saying, this position needs to be strong enough and noticeable enough that some people will object to it. Some people won't want to buy into this. And that's okay. And, and That I, takes a lot of courage, though, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of guts because, you know, a lot of people will come back and say, well, we want to sell to everybody. Right. You can't. Nobody has 100% market share. So uh, to me, it's more a question of do you want to proactively decide who you want to sell to or do you just want to let the marketplace make up its mind for you? Who do you want to get? Uh, I worked with a political uh, campaign manager once upon a time and he had this great, ah, shuck, simple way to look at this. And he just said, look, son, there's the saints, the sinners and the undecideds and the saints love you and you got to learn how to get them to work for you. And there's the... Uh, sinners, and they'll never love you. They hate you, in fact. And that's okay. You just need to know who they are because you better not be spending a dime talking to them. 
And then there's the undecideds. And by and large, they're going to be what, in his case, decides the campaign. How do you position yourself to get them to fall on your side of the fence? And to me, again, great brands are very clear that they're not for everybody. They're very clear about who they are for. So we talk a lot with clients about this thing we call the brand muse. And the idea there is you want the world to have a clear understanding of who you are building your business for. And that person should feel aspirational to them. They should be thinking, you know, it's not out of reach. I I think I've got a little bit of that in me, but I aspire to have more of that in me. Therefore, I will attach myself to this product or service. Nike is a great example, right? It is a brand for highly competitive, high-performing, serious athletes looking for an edge. That's what they want you to see as the kind of person that is buying their brand. And they've been very successful in doing that, and they're very clear on that. The fact that 80% of their shoes are worn to the grocery store is irrelevant. Why are they wearing Nikes to the supermarket? What gives them the sense that they need Nikes to begin with if they're wearing them to the supermarket? Well, you know, brands are badges. You know, we wear brands to tell people a little bit about us. And Nike, as a brand, tells people... Yeah, I may be walking to the grocery store, but I'm ready to break into a run at any time. (laughs) Um, Down the aisles. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever. And I might have just come from a run. And uh, some of these badges you don't wear to the outside world. You're wearing them because of how they make you feel. But they make you feel a certain way. They present a certain side of you uh, that you'd like to present to the outside world. You talk about now how eccentricity rules oh, yeah. and how we need to be brand marketers need to be eccentric. And you include the dictionary definition of eccentric as departing from a recognized conventional or established norm. Is that what you consider to be an important part of positioning now? I do. And I, I also say in there, and, it, and this hit me as I was writing the book, that if you sit there for a little bit and ponder why more people aren't different. Why aren't there more Steve Jobs or Phil Knights uh, or Richard Branson's out there? I think the answer is because since we were little, the world has been conspiring to make us more similar. And these are people who said, not, not, not going to do that. I'm going to be completely unique and different. And so if you take people who have kind of spent their whole life fitting in, trying to succeed, They get to the top of an organization, but they've succeeded by kind of fitting in. Fitting in and standing out, obviously, they've been very successful. Then you say to them, if you want to build a strong brand, you have to do something completely different. And that's a really hard conversation because the usual conversation is, what's my competition doing? What are other people doing? Can you bring me some analogs? Analogs is a big favorite word in our business. It's like, well, yeah, I can. But obviously, that'll prove that other people did that thing. Therefore, by definition, it's not different. And it's hard to do something that is truly different and stands out. And um, we've known for years that strong brands are built on difference. But these days, uh, it's a very cluttered marketplace out there. And the reason I say eccentricity rules is like difference may not be enough. A little different may not be enough anymore. You may need to be a lot different, and that's when you you start to use words like eccentricity or or, or I think somewhere else in there I say radical difference. You need an idea that people go, wow, that's different. That's Let me pay some attention to that. 
You also talk about depositioning. Talk to me about what you mean by depositioning. You know, we compete. Every category, every client we have is competing with uh, a bunch of people. And if you can position yourself in a way that also depositions your competition, in other words, attaches them to an idea that doesn't work very well for them, you've really done yourself a big favor. So I, I worked years ago with Silicon Graphics, an amazing company in the early 90s, doing amazingly well, highest margins in the hardware business. But Sun, who were very smart marketers at that time, Sun depositioned themselves, but depositioned Silicon Graphics by essentially saying to all their customers, yeah, if you want that really expensive, fancy stuff that's only really good for NASA or maybe for Steven Spielberg, you go ahead and buy that stuff. But if you've actually got a business to run and you're worried about price and reliability and things like that, you should buy us. And because Silicon Graphics was sort of not positioning themselves very strongly in the marketplace, you know, the, thing, the other thing I would say is you get positioned. You know, it's, it's, it's a default option. You will be positioned. The world will conspire to position you. Your competitors will conspire to position you. So the issue is not will your brand or will your business have a position. It's do you want to manage it? Do you want to control it? How aggressive do you want to be about this? Do you want your fate in your own hands or do you want your fate in the hands of a whole bunch of other people? The last thing I want to talk to you about, Austin, is a theme that is recurring throughout the book, but I'm not even sure that you are fully aware of how frequent, (laughs) and that is your feelings about Batman. Batman. I love Batman, the Cape Crusader. So you talk about Batman, and you describe him as having both difference and advantage, and you use Batman as an example of a really powerful brand. And you say, if you look at Batman, he's different because he actually went out and built his own powers. He's a self-made superhero. But does anyone care? Turns out that kids do, in fact, care. As a result, the Batman brand can position itself through differentiated advantage. So here you're using Batman as a way of talking about excellence in positioning. Can you elaborate a little bit why you decided to include Batman? Well, the the, um, story is we've actually, we worked with Warner Brothers on the positioning of of Batman. And I think what you said is somewhat (laughs) self-evident. Sorry. No, no, no. but, 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 But actually, I use it as sort of a pure example of how you go about building a brand position because essentially what we did, and I think this is in the book somewhere, but we created a grid. And if you think of difference on one axis and and, and how compelling is it to your audience, in this case, kids, on the other axis, the question then is you can take all of Batman's assets and he's got lots, you know, from his utility belt to, you know, his surrounding cast of characters to his mansion. To You can take all of those and go talk to kids about them. And you're essentially looking for which one of those assets is the most unique and the most compelling. And the answer is he's unique because he is self-made, unlike the others who are essentially mutants with a lot of angst about you know their, their lives and their roles. Batman went out and, and, and with purpose built his powers. And kids love that idea. And that becomes the position for Batman. 
And it's, you know, it's not rocket science. But it is a great sort of small example, pure example, of what we're trying to do in a much more complicated scenario for much larger, if you will, businesses and, and, and clients. So, Austin, my last question to you is one wherein I'm going to solicit your help. I know you have an issue with the word <laughs> I have branding. Many, many issues. <laughs> but you have a very big issue with the word branding. And the conundrum that I'm facing <laughs> is that I am working in a school wherein the program is called the Masters in Branding. So I am going to put it out there. Help me reposition the name of the program in order to satisfy your concerns about the word. Well, you have to keep in mind I'm just a guy trying to sell a book. So, <laughs> so, so I think the, the, the first answer is just ignore me. <laughs> I don't um, want to do that. And many, you know, many obviously will. Uh, I don't think uh, the world is going to do away with the word branding because I wrote a book. Well, I would say, you know, it depends how strategic we want to be. And I think if we want to be strategic, we'd have to sort of work around the, the, the verb and find another. You know, there is such a thing as a brand, and we should want to build this thing called a brand. So there is definitely such a thing as brand building. What I object to is this idea, and it's propagated, I think, by a lot of people in our business, that these magicians that work in our business can just – they can just brand stuff. You know, yeah. Well, well and, and, you know, we do, we, we do this – we just went through this with a client who, who felt that they had inside their organization something like 25 brands. And we ended up all agreeing they had two brands. Even that might be arguable. They had several sort of maybe to a very small community this might have achieved the status of a brand. And then the rest, their names. And there's nothing wrong with a name. It's a great organizing principle. You've got to pay a lot of attention to it. The point is just putting a name on something, even with a TM, with, with a nice design is not a brand, does not make it a brand. It makes it a product or service with a name and a nice design. Now, again, you position that product or service effectively over time. And it's a great product or service. And, and this is a theme through the book as well. At the end of the day, if the product or the service is great, it's going to be relatively easy to build yourself a brand. If the product or service sucks, it's going to be really, really hard. And there's very little track record of success building a strong brand with a really poor product. Very little. There, there, I mean, there are some. Some people are really good at this stuff. But start with a great product. Start with a great service. Build from there. Thank you, Austin. To learn more about Austin's remarkable book, head on over to Amazon. Or you can read chapter summaries at sterlingbrands.com slash brand is a four-letter word. Don't do that. Buy the book. <laughs> I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.